0: Thanks, Sally. Well, good morning to you. My name is CJ. I'm one of the pastors here at Citizens. A couple years ago, Dave uh, shared with me an amazing story about a 90-year-old, 96-year-old woman named Sylvia Bloom. Mrs. Bloom was poor. She was an Eastern European immigrant who grew up in Brooklyn during the Great Depression. She ended up putting herself through college and got a job as a legal secretary at a Wall Street law firm. When she died in 2016, her friends, family, and coworkers were shocked to learn that she had amassed a fortune of over $8 million. Her and her husband didn't dress in expensive clothes, uh, they lived in their same rent controlled apartment in New York City. No one knew how wealthy they were. Uh, Apparently, whenever these investment lawyers that she worked for would tell her to buy stock for them, she would also purchase a little bit of that same stock for herself with a small amount of money. And so her, her investments are smaller than theirs, but enough to bring her enormous wealth at the end of her life. And the most amazing part of the story is that she ends up giving almost all of it away, specifically to help other people who are in her same situation achieve their academic dreams. And so from this story, we see, uh, first of all, when I read this story, I'm like, why doesn't something like that happen to me? I wish I was that savvy and wise, but I'm not, or that disciplined and even that generous, right? Um, Her story is a story of um, enormous generosity, It's a story of contentment um, and with perspective. She had perspective on uh, an eternal perspective, thinking about her life much far beyond her life. Um, She had perspective of having lived with nothing. She knew what it meant to have so much. And this is what God wants for us. This is what he wants for his people. He wants us to know that his generosity to us is unparalleled, and that out of his generosity to us, we are then motivated to be generous to others. He wants us to be content, to learn the discipline and the arts and the mature skill of contentment, knowing that he will provide for all of our needs. And most of all, he wants us to have Perspective perspective of our own life, our own what we have in relationship to other people. He wants us to live with an eternal perspective and we think about our money. Now even as we think about Sylvia Bloom's story and think, oh, that's so great. I wish I had done that. I'll bet you for every one story of hers, there are hundreds of stories of people who also tried to invest money, but picked the wrong stocks, right? Maybe took even bigger risks than she did and lost it all. So even if you and I are sort of savvy and wise and disciplined enough to invest, there are really no guarantees in our earthly investment. The real estate market could crash. The economy could take a nosedive. We could lose our job. We could get injured. Something could happen to us where we lose our means of making money. So truly, we have no um, real lasting hope in our earthly investments. Jesus knew this. And so one day during his ministry, he went up to a mountain and there was a crowd of listeners gathering around him. And he said this in Matthew 6, verse 19. Verse 19 Investing in Christ's eternal kingdom is the only way to secure a satisfying future. That's the truth. That's reality from from God's standpoint. Everything else is a gamble. We don't think that it is, right? We think we're in control and that we have control over all things, but truly, um, God is the only one in control of outcomes. And he's saying, I want you to give back to me, a portion of the money that I have given to you, not because I need it, God does not need our money, but in order to set us free from the tyranny and enslavement of temporary materialism that has no guarantee. Okay, let me pray for us, and we'll, we'll study this together. Jesus, we thank you this morning that although you were rich, With all the wealth of heaven, you became poor so that in your poverty, we might become rich. This morning, we possess the treasures of heaven because of your life, death, resurrection, ascension. And even now, Jesus, as we sit in this room and listen to your scriptures, you are interceding with the Father on our behalf. Holy Spirit, you are groaning on our behalf, praying for us, desiring that we would lack no good thing. And so we ask you, God, to help us. Help us to listen to and hear and obey your scriptures and its commands with regards to our money. We know, Jesus, that you long to rule and reign in every pocket and corner of our heart and life. We confess that we need your help in that. We are half-hearted creatures. We are far too easily pleased. Teach us now, Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, we're in week four, as Dave shared, of a series called A People Who. When you chose to follow Jesus, if you're a Christian, you didn't just secure eternal salvation for yourself, you also became part of a people. A people that God chose and set apart for a specific purpose. If you read through the scriptures, you'll see this idea everywhere, that God wants to mark out a certain group of people and say, these people are mine. They belong to me. I am their God. They will be my people, serving as witnesses to the world, putting on display who I am and what I have done. Now, if you're part of that community, that means you are peculiar. One of my favorite authors, Stanley Hauerwas, in his book Resident Aliens, uh, which I quote as often as I can, calls the church, the people of God, a new people, an alternative polis, a countercultural social structure. Okay, I regularly describe citizens as a colony of countercultural resident aliens signaling a king and a kingdom that is not of this world and found only in Jesus, okay? If I thought I could have named our church The Colony, I would, but you know I couldn't do that, right? (laughs) Sound like a cult. Um, That's what we are. We're something different. We aren't trying to influence the culture. We're not trying to change the culture by being a better example to the culture of what they are already doing. Instead, we are trying to present a society that is wholly other, than what the world has ever seen. So that when people interact with our community, it's as if they've stepped out of the world and into an alternate reality. I like what Dave said in his, his sermon, the first sermon of the series on belief. He said, Christians are weird, right? There's no way around it. He said, We are like a pebble in the shoe of our friends. I love that. I, I got a lot of mileage out of that. I want my non-believing friends to be like, CJ is great, I like him, but he's kind of like a pebble in my shoe, right? He's like, not so annoying, I need to stop and deal with it, but just enough to stay noticeable, right? We do strange things as God's people. And that's what this series is about. This series is about some of the strange things that Christians do, okay? Today is no exception. God tells us in the Bible a lot to willfully give a percentage of our money to him as an investment into our eternity. If you tell your non-believing friends that part of your stock portfolio is investing in the afterlife, they will think you are crazy, right? And they're right. It's a bit strange. So we're gonna talk about money and giving and tithing and stewardship today. But let me begin by saying that citizens is the most generous and faithful church I have ever been a part of when it comes to giving. Um, And and it's it's one of the most generous churches that I've even heard about. Okay, let me show you some statistics about how people give to their church. Um, This is a national, these are national statistics. 5% of people who go to church tithe. Okay, it's a very, very small number. The average monthly amount per church giver, is about $73 a month to their church, okay? On an income of $50,000 a year, that's 1.75% per month that people give, okay? The word tithe means 10%, okay? So they're giving 1% to 2%. At our church, 95% of our members give, 95%, okay? Okay? if we take sort of a median income in the city and we cut off the top 5%, um, that's about $83,000 a year median income for the city, which would be a tithe of $690 a month we would expect sort of on average. Our average monthly gift is $667, okay? Nearly a tithe. So 95% of us are giving and at nearly a tithe, okay? When I tell people that support us, which by the way, we rely on 50% of our budget comes from outside. And so we have people and churches and organizations giving to making this, this church possible. And it's so, so helpful to me as a, one of the main fundraisers in our church to go to our supporters and say, and they say, well, what about your internal giving? Are people giving us? Like, let me show you how faithful our people are. Okay. It's so encouraging to them. And so I want to say, thank you. I want to say, well done, good and faithful servants. This church family is incredibly invested in Christ's eternal giving. And I'll bet that many of you even give to more ministries than just our church, right? You're giving to missionaries and organizations and people. And so your your gift is even above and beyond probably a tithe. And so I'm preaching a sermon about tithing today, but I don't preach it as a rebuke. Instead, as an encouragement to continue trusting Christ with your money and obeying, obeying him as you already are. He will take your gift and multiply it for eternity, bringing you more contentment, perspective, and generosity than you could possibly imagine. Now, for those of you who are new this morning, maybe you're a visitor or not yet a member, I don't know what your giving patterns are. I don't know what you've been taught in church in the past about money. It's very possible that the topic was mishandled. Okay? Um, Maybe your pastor was too afraid to ever bring it up. Maybe it's all they ever talked about, and so you felt pressured and guilted and shamed into giving. Okay? So, So that you know, at Citizens, we bring up everything that the Bible brings up, whether it's comfortable for us or not, okay? But our goal is to never preach out of law or shame, okay? We're never trying to give you rules to follow or try to make you guilty enough to to obey the Lord because those are terrible motivators. They aren't lasting and they aren't from the Bible. Love and the gospel is the motivation that Jesus wants from all of us, okay? If we give out of religious duty or fear, then we have missed the message of the Bible, which is a message of love and grace and freedom. So here's what we're going to do this morning. Normally, we kind of pick a passage and just sit in that passage for the whole sermon, okay? Today, we're going to sort of do more of like a overall from the Bible, beginning to end, what the Bible says about money. So I'm not going to stick in one particular text. So we're going to, we're going to start at the beginning. Okay, we first see... This idea of giving to the Lord in the story of Cain and Abel. Remember, they're they're the sons of Adam and Eve. In Genesis 4, 3 through 5, it says this. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. Okay, a few words you might notice here. The word fruit, okay, in Cain's case, and then the word first, firstborn, in the case of Abel. God makes a comparison between these two kinds of gifts. So the assumption is, if you're created in the image of God, you're going to bring something to God. That's assumed in the text, right? People are bringing, that must have been a regular occurrence. People are bringing offerings to God. Cain brings his fruit, but it's not his first fruit, okay? Abel, on the other hand, brings his first and his best to God. So that's the first place we see it. Later, in Genesis 14, there's a man named Abraham, and Abraham has to go to war in order to rescue his nephew Lot, okay, who gets captured by foreign armies. So he goes and defeats them. And along the way, he's blessed by a priest king named Melchizedek. Let's look at Genesis 14, verse 19 and 20. It says, and he, Melchizedek, blessed him, Abraham, and said, blessed be Abraham by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And then look what it says. And Abram gave him a tenth or a tithe of everything that he had won in the war. Now, this Melchizedek character is actually like, really obscure, All throughout the Old Testament, we never hear about him again. And then about 2,000 years later, in the book of Hebrews, chapter 6, verse 20, he's named as part of the messianic prophecy that Christ fulfills. After this, Abraham's descendants become the nation of Israel. Okay? Israel is a theocracy with God as its king. And in the Old Testament law, the tithe... Is essentially the way the people were taxed. But notice that the tithe is already well established before the Mosaic Law. Okay, so people are already giving that whole idea of a 10%, like way predates Israel. But then once Israel's in place, then it sort of becomes part of this taxation. Okay? And so what's important for us to note there is that anything that lasts pre is pre-Mosaic law it's likely that then that may last longer than that, okay? But let's look at the Mosaic Law. There's four tithes in the Mosaic Law. The standard tithe, okay, which was given to support the priests and the work of the temple, okay? The festival tithe for the celebration of required feasts. There was a charity tithe that was given every third year to the Levite, the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, Okay, so it's a specific type, similar to the way we do benevolence offering. Right? It's a separate thing for the poor. Okay? Then there's a mandatory profit share, which I love this. In Leviticus chapter 19, verses 9 through 10. When you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Leave them to the poor and alien. Remember in the story of Ruth? right? Ruth and Naomi are gleaning in Boaz's fields. Beautiful picture of... Knowing that just if you were living in Israel and you were poor, like you knew you could go to anybody's land and just glean around the outsides and, have, and take what you needed, okay? Now, there's a lot of debate among scholars, Old Testament scholars, about like what all this meant in terms of what is the percentage that people give. Um, some would argue that if you take all these ties and combine them together, that the annual giving for an Israelite was something around 23%. Others think that there are three uses of the same tithe. So people are just giving a tenth, and then it's, it's split up. So the range of possibilities are somewhere between like 10 and 23%. Now, interestingly, the difference between the taxation of the people of God and our experience of taxation is that for them, there was no divide between politics and spirituality. Okay, Their giving was to the nation and to the Lord at the same time. So that it was both a pragmatic thing of, hey, we need to you know, contribute money so that we can have our society function the way it does. But it was also spiritual and an act of worship. And that really got me thinking this week. Like that, Sometimes like a little factoid will just kind of bug me all week. And I think it's the Spirit's way of kind of prompting me. That was kind of getting at me. Because I was thinking, you know, we don't think about our money that way. I, I don't. Where I, where I think about giving to the government as sort of like a spiritual thing, right? I kind of separate that out in my heart of like, okay, I have to give to the government, and my goal is to give as little to them as I possibly can, and I pay people to help me do that, okay? And then on the other hand, I sort of have this like spiritual like, oh, I love Jesus, and I want to build his kingdom and his church, and so I tithe and give. But I wonder... I wonder if God actually wants us to bring those two things back together. Okay, let's say you make $100,000 a year and you pay 30% in taxes. That's a lot. And then God also asks you to give 10% of your gross so that God is saying, I want you to live on 60% of your income. That's a lot to give away. Many of you are doing that. Why would God ask that of you? And why might he make that a whole all-in sort of way that he's set your life up? Okay? Maybe God is wanting to neutralize the power of your wealth in your life to keep it from destroying you. Or to keep you from depending on your finances instead of him. I don't think God wants his people to begrudgingly give to the government and willfully give to the kingdom. In his mind, it's all a gift to him. It's all an act of worship and surrender to him. It's a statement to the Lord that we trust him to provide all that we need. Okay, Remember that the Bible says that we are members of two kingdoms. We have dual citizenship. We are Members of San Francisco and California and the United States, and we're members of Christ's kingdom, both of those are ordained by God to set us apart for his glory. Do we trust him that he put us in this country, in those circumstances? We learn in the scriptures as we continue going and looking at the nation of Israel, how seriously God takes the people's giving, and not just their act of giving, but their attitude about it. Let's look at Malachi chapter 3, verse 6 through 10, sort of like a classic passage that tells us um, about the nation being disobedient and how God responds to them. It's really stern. He says, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your father, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Look at God's response. Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. God accuses the people who are being unfaithful of robbing him. He says that when we don't give faithfully, we are stealing from him. That's pretty strong. Okay, But let's think about it for a moment. Dave mentioned this earlier, and it's called worship. To whom do our possessions belong? Where did all of our wealth come from? We cannot give faithfully to God with a proper heart of generosity unless we first recognize that we are only the steward and not the owner of our wealth. None of us in here are owners. We are only managers, stewards. This shift happened for me in 2008. I grew up in the church And then I went to Bible college and seminary, um, but I did not have a mature understanding of giving. And in 2008, how old was I? 28? Is that correct math? Born in 1980. I was 28 years old, Okay. And I went through a ministry called Crown Ministries that teaches biblical stewardship. And in this process, there was a pastor named Chip Ingram, Um, on one of the videos. And he tells a story about when he was a young pastor and this wealthy church member came to him and handed him a checkbook and said, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take this checkbook and I just want you throughout the month to go and do ministry, bless people in the name of the Lord. And I don't care how much you spend. It's just like a blank thing. I just want you to take people out and bless people and serve people. And at the end of the month, I want you to come back, and I want you to tell me all the stories. Like, tell me all the things that you did with my money. And Chip was like, oh, OK. And so he, like, does this. He talks about how he, like, kept a very detailed ledger of his expenses. He talks about, like, his own finances were kind of, you know, not super legit, and he wasn't very responsible, and he couldn't balance his own checkbook. When it came to this guy's checkbook, though, he was super detailed and wanted to come at the end of the month with great stories to tell this man as to what he had done. And it occurred to Chip along the way that there was no difference in the world between what he was doing with this man's checkbook and his checkbook with God, what God had given him. Your checking account is God's checking account. He has it all. And it's like he has said, here's a checkbook. I want you to go, and I want you to bless people, and I want you to do ministry, and I want you to build my kingdom. And at the end of the month, I want to come back together, and I want you to share with me all the great things that have been done in my name with my money. That wrecked me when I first heard it. you have some of those moments in your walk with Jesus where you just know that God is like just getting you. That was one of those moments for me where I was like, I am immature in this area. I think that I have thought that what I have is mine. It belongs to the Lord. People who love Jesus, who are mature, who understand the gospel, believe wholeheartedly that everything they have has been given to them as a gift, And that God always gives to us, the people of God, so that we can then give to others and make him known as we do. The people in our lives learn about the generous heart of God when they witness our generosity to each other and to the least of these and to them. That's how they know about God. So, man, your God must be so generous. I don't yet believe in him. I think you're a little bit crazy, but your God must be so generous because you are so generous. So I want to ask you, are you robbing God? You can rob him by not giving at all, and you can rob him by giving, but with a begrudging and stingy heart. Faithful obedience and willful generosity are not mutually exclusive for the people of God. If you are waiting to give until you want to, that's disobedience. If you're giving but only because you feel like you have to, that's disobedience. If you know it's right to give and don't, or if you give... But out of a heart, not out of a heart of cheerful generosity, why might that be? I think it's an invitation to ask yourself that deeper question, like, what's going on under the surface of this? Maybe you're afraid you won't have enough. I have I've experienced that many times in my life of like, man, if I give the first fruits to the Lord, I won't have enough for me, what I need. Maybe you've bought into the lie that everything that you have is yours and you earned it. Hey, A good friend of mine, Fred Ligon, likes to say you were born on third base, but think you hit a triple. That's kind of his definition of privilege. Like, (laughs) hey, you you didn't get like you did not hit a triple like you just were born there, you know. So maybe you need to change that thinking. Maybe you don't give because you don't believe in any cause worthy enough to give to. I think that's, that can be true. Maybe you were so beat over the head with legalism in some church, okay, that you are like, man, I don't want to give out of duty, out of religious duty. So I'm not going to give until I'm at a place where I can do that from a pure heart. Whatever the reason might be for you today, Jesus invites you to lay all that down. To follow him, to trust him to join him in the great work that he is doing to restore all things. And the first thing he wants to restore is your own heart that will try to deceive you into thinking you have to look out for yourself because no one else will. God loves you. He sees you. He is watching out for you. He wants to set you free from the grip that money has over your life. I love in that Malachi passage when God says, put me to the test. That's a big deal when you consider the fact that Jesus right, says, do not put the Lord your God to the test. In this case, God says, do put me to the test. See if you tithe and give faithfully what I will do. And I can tell you many stories in my own life of how God has richly blessed and provided for our family in the midst of sacrificial giving. As we move to the New Testament, there's a shift from a more compulsory, sort of, you know, politically based taxation more into willful giving. Okay? God still wants his people to give, but from a place of love and worship, not fear and obligation. Okay? But the New Testament talks about money just as much as the Old Testament. Half of Jesus' parables are about money or possessions. That's a lot. One out of six passages in Matthew, Mark, and Luke are about money. Look at Matthew 23, 23, what Jesus says. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin. All right, they're, they're tithing their spice rack. I don't know how that's done, but they are. And have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. Look what he says, though. Could have said, I don't care about your tithe, I want you to give, I just want you to give generously. But he says, These you ought to have done, meaning the tithe, without neglecting the others. Okay? Jesus doesn't say they don't need the tithe, he just says, continue to tithe, but also don't make your tithe an excuse to neglect other weightier matters of justice and mercy. Okay, and then look at what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 9. This is the passage that Allie read earlier. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Okay, and here's the emphasis on the heart. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. That's the heart that God wants us to have as stewards, as givers. Now, there are those who argue that this passage in 2 Corinthians and others in the New Testament indicates that a strict 10% tithe is no longer required of New Testament believers. Okay? And they're good arguments. Okay? I'm not saying that they're bad arguments. Um, We're definitely not under the law anymore. Right? We're under grace in the new covenant. But I personally love what John Frame says about this. He's a prominent theologian and Christian ethicist. He has this weighty book called Doctrine of the Christian Life. Very intelligent man, student of the scriptures. And he says this, I cannot get out of my head that again and again in the Old Testament, the figure of 10% recurs. That is the Lord's portion. It may be that in the New Testament, that amount is not strictly required. But surely the cheerful giving of 2 Corinthians 9-7 cannot be much less than that. So I unashamedly recommend to inquires the, recommend to inquires the tithe as a beginning of financial discipleship. Okay? Anytime, anytime I have to defend myself, I quote somebody else. Do you notice that? Makes me feel more confident when I'm saying. Here's what I love about the whole percentage thing. Okay? What I love about the 10% thing is how it dignifies every person in our church family. Okay, we all make different salaries. If we measured the size of our gifts, one might feel ashamed of their small portion and another proud of their large portion. But the tithe is not a command of equal gift, but equal sacrifice. Okay, if we all tithe, we're all sacrificing the same amount. I think that that's a grace. It puts us on the same level. Okay? So that if one person makes a lot of money, their 10% is not more impressive than someone that makes a little bit of money. Okay? Both are worshiping God and blessing the church equally. If you don't believe 10% is a good starting point for generous giving in the New Testament, I think you have a large burden of proof to overcome when you look at the whole of the Bible. You see, like If you want to make an argument, I think God's only asking me to give 2%, I would say you have a large burden of proof to overcome. If you do not yet give to the Lord or if you aren't giving 10%, let me remind you of grace. Let me remind you, you're not in sin. God is not displeased with you. He is not bringing a stern rebuke to you. Okay, He wants to grow you in this area lovingly and with kindness and grace. Okay, And it's a hard thing to start. Like If you don't give at all and you've set your budget up, right? To then reduce your means by 10% so that you can give can be hard, okay? So let me give you some practical wisdom to help you. Start with determining an amount that you believe God's asked you to give on the, a percent of your gross income, okay? Decide, that sort of in 2 Corinthians, decide for yourself what you ought to give, okay? If you're compelled by what I'm saying, say, I think God probably does want me to give 10%. So start there and say, that's probably the biblical standard for me, Okay? Use, use the biblical tithe That's a good starting point, but then say, okay, I'm going to prayerfully start somewhere. Like I'm going to start at 2% or three or four, whatever it is. Okay. And then just dedicate that amount to Lord say, Lord, I'm going to dedicate this to you with cheerfulness and trust. Okay. And then say, God, would you help me to grow this? Okay? And then say, make a plan to sort of increase that percentage like every quarter or every six months or a year until you get to that place. Okay? There, is, there is nothing wrong with that. That is a beautiful and good thing. And maybe even just watch how God provides more for you. He says, hey, I'm gonna take that 2% you're giving and I'm gonna bless it and I'm gonna show you how you can give even more to me. Test him. I guarantee you, you will see him grow your ability to give tithing produces contentment. It produces generosity, but it also helps us have perspective, eternal perspective, but also perspective about what's true about our life now. Okay. Let's look at first Timothy six, verse 17 through 19. This one's going to sting a little bit. It says, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. My kids say all the time, I wish we were rich, okay? And I tell them, we are rich. If you make $34,000 a year, you are in the top 1% of the world. The average income in the US is $50,000 a year. That, If you make that, you're in the top 44% of the 1%. The global average annual income is $1,225 a year. If you make $34,000, you are 27 times wealthier than the average human. The lowest paying job in the US is someone in the food industry who may make roughly $18,000 a year. That's 14 times wealthier than the average human. Many people begging on the streets make roughly $20 a day. That's $7,300 a year. That's still six times the amount of most of the people around the globe. If you live in America, we aren't just the rich of this present age. We are the filthy rich of this present age. Mark 10, 25, Jesus says, It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. That is sobering. Our giving to God through tax and tithing protects us from missing God's kingdom because we are fixated on our wealth. To non-believers, that's an insane way to think. But to the peculiar people of God, it makes all the sense in the world. I love what C.S. Lewis says in his book, Mere Christianity. He says, I do not believe one can settle how much we ought to give. I am afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. In other words, if our expenditure on comforts, luxuries, amusements, etc., is up to the standard common among those with the same income as our own, we are probably giving away too little. If our charities do not at all pinch or hamper us, I should say they are too small. There ought to be things we should like to do and cannot do because our charitable expenditures excludes them. I freaking can't stand my van. It's ugly, it's old. There's definitely something wrong with my air, like it's hot when I want it cold and cold when I want it hot. When it rains, the automatic doors stop working. Okay? It just makes weird noises. Georgia used my van the other day. She's like, why is there a beeping sound? I was like, I have no idea. Okay? part of For us, part of giving to the Lord means not having a car payment. Okay? It means we buy clothes on the cheap. It means we eat out less than we'd like to. It means putting less away for retirement and entrusting our future to the Lord. It means staying with family and friends a lot when we vacation. All of these things keep us grounded in the reality that this is not our eternal home. Our possessions don't define us. We aren't dependent. We aren't dependent on them. We are dependent on God and interdependent with others. And that is the path to flourishing and freedom. Those are investments that are lasting and eternal. I don't know what it is for you, it's different for all of us what you might be invited to give up or have less of so that you can give more to the Lord. In all of these things, the basis for contentment, for generosity, for perspective, all comes from what God did when he sent Jesus to the earth. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that it is God who gave his first fruits to us? Look what it says. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Do you think God intended to use the word first fruits" in Genesis so that when he got to this moment, he could say, you know what I'm talking about? That's who Jesus is. That God, though he was entitled to all the wealth of heaven, he outgave us When out of his rich generosity sent Jesus, his first and his best, to forgive us for our sin, securing eternal salvation for us. And then 2 Corinthians 8, 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. It is Christ who secured for us an eternal wealth that far surpasses any that we could secure for ourselves. So let me, let me reiterate to you as your pastor that we didn't choose to preach on giving because we need your money or to rebuke you or shame you or give you a law. Okay? God has provided for this church family for seven years. He's been providing for my family to church plant in San Francisco now for almost 10 years. Okay? The good news is this is God's church, right? Jesus planted this church, and the burden of this church family rests on his shoulders. Okay? So don't please don't hear me say, like, and you guys need to give more. Okay, that's why I started by saying, we are giving faithfully already. The more important message, and the reason for us to preach on this, is to invite you to be stewards with Christ of his money so that he can release you of the slavery that comes from depending on your temporal wealth and instead saying lay up for yourself treasures in heaven he wants you to invest in his kingdom that's the only way to secure the future that we long for okay let me pray